0: Welcome to Super Agent Podcast. This podcast strives to promote healthy aging and amplify caregiver voices while raising awareness about dementia. Thank you for tuning. In. I'm your host, Fatou Sisi. Today, I am speaking with Therese Morisi. Therese has been working as an advanced care planning social worker at Dean Health Plan since March 2019. Her prior healthcare experience over 18 years includes working as a complex case manager at UW, an in home and inpatient social worker at Agrates Hospice, and medical social worker at Good Cemetery Regional Medical Center in Corvallis, Oregon. Did I say that right?
1: Corvallis, yep.
0: Corvallis, okay. <laughs> She receives her master's degree in social work at Loyola University, Chicago, and her bachelor's degree in the Eastern Illinois University. She has a special interest in helping people begin the plan on foreseen medical events and end of life. This lessens burden to loved ones and better ensure that they receive the health care that matches their values and preferences. Welcome to the podcast. Therese.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Of course. It's wonderful to have you. And I'm so looking forward to talking with you today on this very important discussion that we are going to have about advanced care directive and advanced planning, which you are a total expert on. So I'm delighted to have you on this podcast. But before we dive into that, what does super agent means to you?
1: So to me, the image I have of a super ager is somebody who's really engaged in life. They're not defined by their age or their, the number that's mm-hmm. assigned to them. You know, they continue to stay active mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally. You know, somebody who's in their 80s and is still playing tennis or still playing bridge or, you know, just really maximizing their days and just wanting to stay as well and healthy as they can and connected to the, you know, with a really good social connections and social network. So somebody really who's just really vital living fully.
0: That's great yeah I, I totally agree with that 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 does truly really define what a super age is. And therese, what inspired you to pursue social work and with a focus on advanced care directive and advanced care planning?
1: So I guess going, All the way back to graduating from undergraduate, I had my, I studied sociology and I just really had an interest in kind of social problems, Mm -hmm. how people function in groups together, and then just wanting, really wanting to help people. And it was kind of going through my work with, um, I started out working with kids who were victims of abuse and neglect, and then realized I just really wanted to keep going in that direction. So I went back to my school and got my degree in social work. And then ended up getting a job in a hospital and then really enjoyed that experience. It was very rich, but was really, I've always had a curiosity and a fascination with end of life and a kind of a passion for end of life. I had a brother who died when I was three months old. And so I think it's always something that I've thought about and it's been on my mind and want to help people talk about it and have these hard conversations that we're just not having. So you know my work with hospice felt like i was really you know able to do that and all of the medical experience i have and i've been doing advanced care planning for since 2002 so it's been a long it's, time it's been a long time that i've been helping people with these these documents and now i feel really lucky that i'm able to you know have a career that's just focused on advanced care planning and helping get the word out about how important this is and for seniors and for older adults, but also for everybody, for everybody over age 18. So I really am appreciative of the opportunity to be here.
0: Thank you, I mean, you're so right. The focus on advanced care planning could not be more important to anybody because there is so much unknown, so much emergencies that we tend to see as professionals who work in this kind of industry. And you probably know this, I mean, you know this because this is your area of expertise that you come to encounter so many people who are not prepared Mm -hmm. for those emergencies. So Mm -hmm. having someone uh, with your expertise and having the information about these kinds to prep for those unforeseen incidents, it's it's vitally important. Mm
1: I'm really excited that in my career, I kind of started out in the hospital and then hospice. And with each job, I'm kind of beat, now I'm able to capture people while they're still well or, you know, not in a medical crisis, not an emergency. And mm-hmm. so it's not too late. So it's I'm happy to be catching people more upstream now.
0: Yeah. And, you know, you're right, because you can bring your uh, your experience from hospice to the health care, to the hospital setting and kind of enlighten people mm-hmm. about those experiences. So that is very key. And tell us what advanced directive, care directive and advanced care
1: planning means. So advanced directives are legal documents, and those are part of the process of advanced care planning. So advanced care planning being the process of communicating your wishes to the people who are closest to you so that they can so they can be a, a good advocate for you so that if they ever needed to step into your shoes to be your voice, that they have the tools and the means to be able to do that confidently. Um, what we want to avoid is people kind of wringing their hands and not knowing and having to guess at what our wishes are. You know, that's I mean for anybody who's been in that position before it's it's very hard, very difficult and a lot of guilt and anguish and burden can be experienced that way. So advanced care planning is really, it's the gift of, of communicating, of verbalizing your wishes to the people closest to you. So they know what you want, mm-hmm. um, if they ever have to talk, speak for you. And then right. the advanced directives are the legal documents that allow you to give instructions for what you want in terms of what kind of life-sustaining treatment you may want or not want. So there's two documents, the power of attorney for healthcare is the document that allows you to name a person, they call them the healthcare agent, or sometimes called a healthcare proxy. And that's who you name to speak for you. And you can on the document, you can name one or two of first person, and then also a secondary backup person. Some people will name even more, but that is to so that you're prepared. And then that person's also prepared mentally they kind of know that if something happens to you they're they're going to be having to jump in. So that's the healthcare power of attorney and then the other form is the living will. And the living will is where you give instructions for, you know, in the case of a persistent vegetative state or a terminal condition, mm-hmm. would you want life sustaining treatment such as a tube feeding or a breathing machine or a ventilator or mm-hmm. other kinds of life sustaining treatments? Would you want to live under those conditions. Right. So that's a that's a pretty basic form, but that's basically what the the directives are and inside of advanced care planning, which is a process that goes across the years.
0: Okay. You mentioned most people have one healthcare power of attorney, but some will have a secondary. Can you elaborate on that? What would be the importance of having a secondary power of attorney?
1: So if your first the per- first person that you named was unavailable for any reason, mm-hmm. so maybe maybe they're deceased and you haven't updated your form yet, or mm-hmm. maybe they are traveling and they're not available. They don't have cell reception. Maybe they're ill. Maybe they're going through their own surgery or their own medical events mm-hmm. and they don't have the, you know the ability to be able to be there in the way that you would need them to. So in those circumstances, you know, the medical team would reach out to your primary. And if that person were not available, then they would go to the second person.
0: That's great. When should an advanced care directive or an advanced care planning apply?
1: So it applies to everybody once you turn 18. So, you know, most people, I think there's a myth out there that advanced care planning or advanced directives are for people who are old or -hmm. sick. So. You know, I talk to people all the time and they're like, why are you talking to me about this? I'm 45 or I'm healthy or I'm, you know, this is not for me. And I'll say this is for everybody over age 18, because I think we all would have a preference if something happened to us right now. I think yep. all of us would want to choose a person to jump in and speak for us. Yep. And if we're not doing the power of attorney for healthcare, we are risking you know, who knows who's going to step in for us? Wisconsin is not a next of kin state, which okay. means that we can't just, you know, our spouse or our parent or our oldest child, they can't just step in and make all decisions on our behalf. So if we don't have this in place, it could be that one of our loved ones would need to seek guardianship or a temporary guardianship, which is expensive and cost, like, you know, during very stressful times to then have to go through the courts to get guardianship when this is something that's easily avoidable. If we have a power of attorney, if we thought ahead and designated somebody to be our spokesperson.
0: Right, and aside from, so Wisconsin is not a next of skin state. Mm-hmm. So aside from getting the guardianship, can is is the medical team going to step in or how
1: does that work? If somebody doesn't have it, Yeah. So if somebody doesn't have an advance directive and there are decisions that need to be made Mm -hmm. um, that require that, then either the family would have to seek guardianship Mm -hmm. or if there isn't anybody who is able to seek guardianship, then the hospital would need to start that process.
0: Okay. What would be the drawbacks of hospitals stepping in to do that instead of
1: family doing it? Well, it would be probably just a court appointed guardian. So somebody who doesn't even know the person, you know, I think we'd all rather have somebody who knows us making these decisions for us.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. What should or must include in the advanced care directives and um, planning in terms of goals, objectives and expected outcome?
1: So I think of in terms of the goals, goals, objectives and expected outcomes. So in planning, I think of like a, an end of life plan. Okay. So we all, if you think about, you know, the biggest things that happen in our lives are birth, coming into this world, and death, you know, depart, departing this world. Right. And we do a wonderful job planning our births. Our parents do. <laughs> we have extensive birth plans. Maybe they don't go as planned all the time. There's complications. You know, there's adaptations and adjustments that are made but we put a tremendous amount of energy into making that a smooth and comfortable entrance to the world. Mm -hmm. We are not as good at, at helping, you know, for ourselves and for our loved ones to helping create a smooth and safe transfer, a departure out from this world. It's a, you know, something that's uncomfortable for people to talk about. There's, we live in a culture that is afraid of talking about death and dying. And yet, I think it's probably on all of our minds. There's people who don't think about it until they have to. And those are typically the people who don't have any plan in place and things are challenging. But we, you know, we bring all of our life experiences, all of our cultural background, all of our family, societal norms, all play into what we want for our end of life. So, in thinking about goals and expectations, You think about what you want. Think about if I could plan my own death, what would it look like? Mm -hmm. Where would I be? Would I be at home or would I be in a hospital? Would I be at someone else's home? Who would I have around me? Who would I want being in charge?
0: Yeah.
1: You know, what kind of care would I want? Would I want hospice care? Mm -hmm. Would I feel comfortable with people coming to my home or would I rather be somewhere else? You know, do I value quality of days versus quantity of days yeah so and in my work with hospice I you know that really ranges I saw you know there were a number of people who just said you know I just want to feel as good as I can for as long as I can but I don't want to suffer mm-hmm. so if I live less time I'm okay with that I just want to enjoy the time I have and then there's other people who feel like you know I I want every day counts. If, if, if you have young children and you want to spend every minute with them, mm-hmm. those are situations where people want, you know, every every single minute is so precious. Mm-hmm. So, you know, their goals are going to look different. And people who are younger, their goals are going to look different than somebody who's 80. Mm-hmm. So, you know, those are all things that we kind of bring into into our plan. And when we're young, maybe it's not realistic to have, you know, a detailed plan. Mm-hmm. Maybe what is, you know, but something broad and basic, you know, mm-hmm. would we want to live in a persistent vegetative state mm-hmm. or, in, and then as we get older or we have medical conditions, then we start talking a little bit more in that plan, things, we add things to that plan.
0: Right. I mean, just hearing you go over these things, it definitely is a difficult conversation, but yet a conversation worth having, <laughs> How have you been able to like bring people to actually come to accept to go through the planning, but also like come to the point that and say, we accept the fact that we should do this and do it. How do you persuade people to do that?
1: Um, Well, we really, you know, as social workers, we really meet people where they're at. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of reasons why people might have resistance to wanting to do this or not wanting to, to have this conversation. You know, maybe it's that they've had really negative experiences. Maybe they've had a loss in their life that was really painful and didn't go well, and they don't even want to think about it, mm-hmm. or they don't, they don't trust the medical system. They don't feel like that they can have the good care that they want. They don't know that that, they don't realize that could be available to them and how to get that. Mm -hmm. And so there's a number of reasons why people don't want to talk about it. I think the most important thing is just listening to people, you know, asking kind of open-ended questions about, you know, tell me about what, why this is, might be challenging for you and see if they open up and tell you the reasons that they don't want to do it. There's also you know, if, if they don't want to talk about it, then they don't have to do a document. You know, nobody has to do advanced care planning. It's not mandatory. It's strongly encouraged. It's a good idea. But I think coming, you know, educating them about all the reasons that this is a really good idea, the benefits, what this, you know, that we all have rights to getting the health care that we want. And this helps us to do that because nobody can give us the health care we want if we haven't made our wishes known.
0: You know, I, I, as you are speaking about this, I'm also thinking as a Muslim, one of the things that happens when people die is uh, the rituals that happen mm-hmm. to the body. So even the bathing, a special way of yep. doing it. So if that is not in place, and then the person who's probably a Muslim died in say, a hospital or a, a hospice and maybe not connected to the Muslim community mm-hmm. who's going to come and do that, or maybe hospice is not familiar or the hospital mm-hmm. is not familiar with these things. I think those, all of those things are important to put in the document mm-hmm. so that hopefully the hospitals, all these facilities have those resources to right. tap into and provide what's needed for that individual's ritual mm-hmm. of going, going home. If you will. Yeah,
1: that's a really important question, too, is, you know, making sure that we're asking the question. Tell me about your cultural background. Tell me about your faith. Tell me about the rituals and practices that are important to you. Tell me about your end of life. Beliefs and what you know. How can we support you? Right. I saw this mostly in my hospice experience, mm-hmm. um, where we would make a plan of care for them. You know, mm-hmm. in working with Muslim patients or other faith communities, mm-hmm. you know, with very yeah. specific specific needs at end of life okay. that we want to respect and honor. So you know, making sure you're asking people those questions so that they have a chance to educate us. Mm-hmm. So we can get the, get the support them and make, make that happen for them.
0: Can the healthcare providers go against uh, advanced care directive for the patient?
1: Yeah. You know, they're legal documents. So the doctors should be following their wishes that are on the document. Could there be situations where there's maybe an ethical question? You know, maybe the, the wishes may not feel like they're appropriate. Right. And then it's a conversation with the other, the team, and maybe it goes. You know, it's a question for the ethics committee. Maybe that, that could potentially happen. But it is a legal document, and it, it right. should be followed.
0: So I think yes, you're right, and I think it's a ethical, a legal document, and it also could be an ethical issue. So for instance, if Let's say Wisconsin is not a state where physician assisted suicide happens, but somebody who you alluded to the fact that some people may want the quantity of life days instead of the quality of life. And some some people might want the quality and say, hey, I don't want to suffer any longer than that. So please help me speed up the process, sort of. Mm -hmm. Right. And if that becomes an ethical issue for the doctors who, or the team that is caring for that individual, can they go against that patient's advanced care directive? And if so, how do they handle that?
1: And I don't know that I can speak to that exactly. I know that they, you know, we don't have, we don't have that in our state, so they can't support the patient in that goal.
0: Right.
1: So in that case, they would, you know, I would think that that would become something for the, the ethics committee, kind of depending on the specifics of the case. But, you know, we, we just, we can't, we don't have that. So,
0: okay. All right, great. What are the different types of advance directive?
1: So the ones that I've talked about so far, so the power of attorney for health care and the living will, that's. You know, across all states, they all have that. They may look a little bit different, but they have those components. There's different forms that people can use. The states all have a state form. So there's a state of Wisconsin form you can use. Some people will opt to use one, like a, they know the VA has a form. I know there's one called the five wishes that people can purchase. Um, and those are not, I think, recognized in every state. So you may have to make okay. sure those are valid. Um, honoring choices. And then some religions have their own form, which has the same basic structure and should include the Wisconsin statutes so that it's valid in Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. So I would just, you know, make sure people are making sure, ensuring that their form that they're using is a valid form in Wisconsin.
0: I see. Okay. So you just mentioned the different forms. I want you to elaborate on that because I wanted to know if the advanced care policies like the directive policies are uniform throughout the nation or is it different from state to state?
1: There's similarities. They all you know, have the components where you can name somebody to speak for you and they all have the living will. They might vary in their statutes. Okay. So there isn't just one form. You know, each state has their own form. But they should be recognized state to state. So if you're traveling and you have a medical emergency in another state, mm-hmm. they should honor your form. And it's important for people to be carrying their form, you know, in their glove compartment or something like that. So they do have it while they're traveling. There's also in terms of types of forms, there's the DNR order, which mm-hmm. is not necessarily part of the advanced directive, but it is a planning form. Right. And that is the do not resuscitate. Right. So important for people, I just want to talk about that, provide some education around DNR, because I hear from people that they are a DNR and, and then I'll look in the record and there's no documentation of it. So when people go into the hospital, they are asked, do you want resuscitation? Mm-hmm. And if they say no, then they're given a bracelet to wear that says, no, they don't want CPR. And then when they leave the hospital, that's cut off. And I think when people go home, they think that they are still, do not resuscitate. Mm -hmm. So that they don't realize that that is only during their hospital stay. And Mm -hmm. once they go back home, they're considered a full code again. So, you know, if 911 is called, their heart stops, they're going to get CPR. Mm -hmm. So if people are questioning whether they would want heart CPR, then they should talk to their doctors because it's a physician order. Right. So that would be, it would need to be agreed upon between you and your doctor about whether or not, you know, that's an appropriate thing.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I think a lot of education, as you mentioned, is needed in that area because even within, for us as a, as part of our assessment, we always ask if our potential client or our client is a DNR, you know, because sometimes they might be from the time that it, you start working with them and maybe something changed and they might not want to be, mm-hmm. you know, all of that situation can happen. But a lot of times I think you're right. They may think that they are when they're actually not. It was a temporal thing that was done at the hospital and they go home and think that's I uh,
1: And if they do want to be a DNR, they will get a bracelet that's signed by the doctor. That's an official bracelet. And then if they wanted a metal one, if they didn't want to wear that plastic one, they would go through a company called Sticky J. And that's the only one here. You know, all states are different. So if you're living in another state, this may be different. But in Wisconsin, Sticky J is the company that you order that from. And so, that doesn't yeah, because people will say like, I'm going to get it tattooed on my chest or I'm going to, you know, they'll wear a necklace. Well, none of those things will work. You have to have this official bracelet to have it recognized.
0: Now, that gives me a thought about not the DNR, but the advanced directive. So what if somebody didn't go with that? Is there like a database where this should be or it is? or maybe it is in the person's primary healthcare providers um, system so that they Mm. know who is in charge and all that. And if they happen to be traveling to, I know this is all a lot of questions, (laughs) (laughs) but if they happen to be traveling to somewhere out of state and they do not carry their document with them and God forbid something happens, how are those things handled?
1: So the best thing to do with your directive is to have it on file with your doctor's office. Okay. That's when it's going to be readily accessible. Mm-hmm. So if you were to show up in the emergency room of your hospital or your community, they can easily, if they don't have it in their system, they can easily get it from another system. If you were out of state, you know, they would probably ask, your next of kin, do they have an advanced directive? Hopefully you should be giving your healthcare agents a copy of your advanced directive. And then also really anybody in your family who you're very close to who's going to be really involved. And it may not even be a healthcare agent. If you have two agents and you have four kids, you may want all of them to have it so they're prepared and they know who the agents are. And then they can either bring it into the hospital or they can tell the hospital out of state, you no, know, they have one on file at you know, St. Mary's Hospital in Madison. And then they can get it that way. But okay. it's really important that you have it on file with the health system because they get lost. And right. A lot of people lose the original and then the, the agents lose their copies. And And you don't want to have your family out looking for your document when you're you're in the hospital. You want them there with you. And not having that stress of having to go look through your file cabinets and try to find this document. And it would be really unfortunate if they couldn't find it. I had somebody who just told me a few weeks ago, they had to make a decision. Their father had an event suddenly and they all rushed to the hospital and he was at the end of life. They had to make decisions and they did make a decision to withdraw care and allow him to, made him comfortable, allowed him to die And then they didn't have the form, they didn't have a directive, they were just kind of going on conversations and what they knew about him. And then when they went home that afternoon, they found it. So and luckily, it aligned with what they the decision that they made. So you know, big sigh of relief for them, you know, but things could have been different. So really important because things can happen really quickly. So the best place to have it is on file with your doctor's office. And then you want to talk to your doctor too to make sure they know what your values around end of life are. Right. Yeah. When should it be activated? And
0: is there a recommended pl- Well, we just talk about the place to keep it, but when should it be activated?
1: Yeah. So if a person is unable to make medical decisions, so mm-hmm. what that means is when they're unable to receive and evaluate information effectively or communicate to such an extent that the individual is lacking capacity to manage their healthcare decisions. So that is considered incapacitation. And it takes, in our state, in Wisconsin, two doctors or a doctor and a psychologist or a doctor or a physician assistant now. And this just changed in February of last year. So before that it had to be two physicians or a physician and a psychologist. So depending on which document you have filled out, probably for most of us it's the older form, but going forward it can be more people who can activate that form. In Wisconsin we have an actual activation form process. So when it is determined that this person is doesn't have the capacity to make healthcare decisions for themselves, then they two people sign this form. And then, what's important to know is that it can be deactivated. So, if that person regains their mental status or their mental function to where they can make medical decisions again, then it takes one physician to sign that form and then that deactivates it. And then you are again making your own decisions. And then, it's important to know too I think there's a fear that people have around doing these documents that they're giving up control, that they're like, somebody's going to take over making decisions for them. Mm-hmm. And in my experience, you know, I've worked with a lot of people who will say to me, "Well, I'm the POA." And I'll say, "So you're the power of attorney, is it activated?" Well, no. Well, then you're not the POA. You know, you're not the you're not making decisions yet. Yeah. There might come a time where you are, but right now, you know, your father, your mother Sister, brother, is making their own decisions. So there is a misconception that when this form is completed, that okay, now I'm going to be making decisions. And that's not how it works. It is, we are all making our own decisions until two medical professionals determine that we don't have the capacity to do that. And then, even then, the healthcare agents should be trying to get your input throughout the process. So and the document says, even if you can only blink your eyes, they should still be trying to get your input as to what you want. So it's not like all of a sudden you're not, you're left in the dark and you don't know anything anymore. So that's, I think, important for people to know.
0: Yeah, you're You're right. That's an important one. What is the best way for elderly or anyone to approach someone about assigning them to be the FPOA.
1: So you want to make sure this has to be an agreement between both people. Mm-hmm. So what I used to see a lot, I don't see it as much anymore, but I saw in early in my career, I saw people were note, were filling out their forms and they weren't telling the people that they were naming them as their agent. Right. So imagine that surprise call when mm-hmm you know, suddenly you're making decisions for somebody and you didn't even know you were named on their form, on their document. So really, we want to avoid that. So we want to, before you fill out any forms, you want to consider who it is that you trust with your life, essentially. So who you think would follow through with your wishes, even if they didn't agree with them, who would be able to hold up under stressful circumstances. And then Once you have an idea of who that might be, the next step is talking to them and Mm -hmm. telling them about advanced directives, if they're not familiar with it, and then letting them know what it includes. So what is the role of the healthcare agent? What are you asking of me? If you're asking me to be your agent, what does that mean? Most people I think don't, I think most people think it means pulling the plug. Yeah. Can I pull the plug? Mm -hmm. Um, I hear that all the time. And it's so much more involved than that, or it can be so much more involved in that, you know, especially if somebody has cognitive impairment, like dementia or Alzheimer's, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, you could be in the role of caregiver or agent for years. So let them know that this is about making choices about your, my my medical care. It's about, you know, you may be asked to review and release medical records and arrange for medical care and treatment. Right. And making decisions on the living situation where, where I would live. And then deciding which healthcare providers can provide my treatment. So it, it can be involved. And so you want to give them the opportunity. Pardon me?
0: I said it's a lot more than just pulling the plug.
1: hmm Yeah.
0: You know and it's and it's important you know,
1: that they know what, what they're agreeing to and that they are voluntarily agreeing for that. And then following that. The next step is to let them know what your wishes are so that they have the means to be able to make those decisions for you.
0: And you mentioned in our previous conversation that a lot of times when people think about healthcare POA, they're thinking about who would pl- unplug mm-hmm. <laughs> when the time is right. Mm-hmm. And it's much more than
1: that. It's much more than that. Especially I, th- I mentioned if somebody has a neurocognitive disorder like dementia or Alzheimer's, where they may not be able to make decisions for themselves over the course of years. So it can be quite extensive and involved.
0: Right, right. So what what, what it reminds me is like a few years ago, a friend assigned me to be not a healthcare POA, but a financial POA. And she's assigned her daughter The healthcare POA. When she approached me about this, and I asked why me and why that specific role instead of the healthcare POA, because I would think, if anything, that's where I'm very well versed in Mm. how I can help somebody navigate the healthcare system. But the very thing you said was her answer to me because she said, well, I know you will not let go, mm. and I and I said, you know, you're right, and I think she was right because it will be hard for me to let go, and she knew that. But again, this is much, much more than letting the person go, mm-hmm. um, and I think when the time is right, that's going to happen anyways. Um, that's how I see, how, how I see it. You know, yes, there is that that people who wanted to hasten it can hasten it. But I feel strongly that, you know, when that time comes, that time is not, a second is not going to add to that time. But that was her, her reason. So it just reminds me what you just said, that people think this is like about making a decision for someone to go instead of hanging on to them. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's much much more than that Mm
1: -hmm. you know people often think that they have to choose somebody who is a family member Mm -hmm. or somebody who lives close Mm -hmm. and that's not true that there are some people who don't have you know they're not close to their family or they don't have family and they you know have to look outside of that so friends you know people in groups that you belong to, maybe cultivating a relationship with somebody um, with the idea of, you know, here's what I'm thinking. And I I don't, I know, I don't know you that well yet, but I respect you. I admire you. um, I trust you. And would you be interested in, you know, getting to know each other better with this goal in mind? Because I think we have more people who don't have anybody to name as their agents. Right. And there, you know, there's more people who are not having children, there's more people who have their families kind of spread out all over, or they're just not close. um, Or there's people who've just outlived their family and friends. So various reasons where, you know, lots of people or more people are living alone um, and more isolated. And so there's a name, solo agers and elder Mm -hmm. orphans are terms that used for people who don't have um, family and friends to name on their documents. And so, you know, I'm hopeful that there will be more services coming to address this need. Um, there's only one program that I'm aware of that is, you know, where you can pay a fee and have somebody name as your agent who you can cultivate that relationship with. But I think that's going to be a need kind of down the road that's going to grow.
0: Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I agree with you. And that often seniors that you mentioned, there's a lot of them out there that's going to need that kind of support. That's not going to be a family member, but somebody who probably understand how to support those kind of needs and willing to do it uh, would be the people to approach for it. Yes. So now what do you suggest for a senior to do if he or she does not have a proxy that's what we yep so as far as how do how would they go about like searching for that individual
1: yeah so they can well if you don't have anybody to name i would encourage you to complete a living will to at least get your document, your wishes. That's also called the declaration to physicians. Mm-hmm. So that lets your physician know what your wishes are. You know, if you, you know, for life sustaining treatments in a persistent vegetative state or a terminal condition, mm-hmm. good for do you to get those wishes known at least. And then you can kind of think more about, you know, who can my, who can I think about as an agent, um, and again, I just talked to somebody recently who had um, had family, but they were estranged, and they had they were extremely close to their next door neighbor, mm-hmm. and you know over the course of um, after this diagnosis with a life threatening illness, mm-hmm. the neighbors really leaned in and they um, supported her in many ways with all of her household tasks, with meals, with all of that, and then as she, you know, became more ill, they came and they actually became her healthcare agents. Agents. So, you know, it'd be and that wasn't. I don't think that was their relationship. They'd lived together, li- lived next to each other for many okay. years, but they didn't have that relationship the whole time. You know, okay. it really, okay. it really became closer as she had more needs as she was getting older okay. and. And they were kind of stepping in more. And then when she became ill, they really leaned in. So I guess just cultivating the relationships around you, if you belong to any civic groups, Mm -hmm. church groups, any faith community groups, you know, as senior center, you know, if you are going there, participating in activities, you know, talking about it, because there are lots of people in this circumstance. Right. And, right. you know, if they could meet each other and kind of maybe they would be interested in cultivating a relationship with one another to be each other's agents. Right. So, right. but it if at the very least is getting, I think, a living will in place is important.
0: I agree. I agree. Totally. And from your years of experience, have you seen things like abuse of mis- or mishandling of advanced directives or care planning?
1: I don't know that I've seen abuse of a a healthcare agent in terms of making decisions that they wouldn't agree with. Mm -hmm. But I have, when I worked in the hospital, I used to see periodically people being, patients being pressured by somebody, family or friend or caregiver to fill out the power of attorney for healthcare and name them. Mm. And so that is something I think we have to be, as social workers, we have to be really careful. Okay. And when we talk to people about who they're naming as their healthcare agent, is making sure it's someone they trust, and yeah. and not making that decision, you know, with other people, but maybe asking everybody to leave the room, and getting you know as safe a private space as possible, and talking with them about, you know, who they trust. Mm-hmm. Is this is, we clearly know that this person wants to be your healthcare agent, but is that what you want? Yeah. You know. Do you trust this person with these responsibilities? So, you know, there's there's lots of probably really challenging situations like, you know, abusive relationships and, you know, where we have to be really careful and really listen to what the patients are wanting and and really helping them to, to feel safe, to be able to have a, a real good conversation about it. Yeah. But I think if you are concerned that there is somebody you know, being abused or being victimized, then we need to report that, you know, to the reporting agencies.
0: And would that be APS?
1: Yes. The Adult Protective Services.
0: Okay. Great. So in case of in cases where seniors does not have the advanced directive and maybe does not want to as well, they are resistant to it, what are the best approach to kind of introduce this to them and and help them understand why they need that
1: yeah and I think this one we we talked about a little bit but mainly meeting them where they're at mm-hmm. so you know if if they are absolutely not going to talk to you about this mm-hmm. that's okay right. they don't have to you know they it's not mandatory it's it's a choice that people can make <laughs> for themselves whether they want to fill out these documents
0: yes
1: but we can you know pr- Listen to them and find out what it is, you know, ask some open-ended questions about, you know, what is it about filling these out that mm. or thinking about this that you don't want to do. And then, you know, see if you can get some reasons out. You know, for some people it's that they don't trust the medical system. I think mm-hmm. for a lot of people they don't trust the medical system. And I right. feel like if they do this document, they're giving their control over to somebody else. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of, I think of fear around that and then worry about cost. I think there's a misconception out there that this, you have to get a lawyer. This is like, you know, and they don't realize this is free and that it's not as difficult as, as it seems. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah. And I think I, you know, there's people who just are very uncomfortable thinking about end of life. Right. And we don't know, I guess, trying to learn more about their background and their life experience, you know, Mm that, that is kind of impacting their decisions right now. Right, right, right. And then giving them information about, you know, that it's free, Mm -hmm. that it's not giving control away, that this is only applying if it's activated. And then, you know, it can be deactivated if you're if things change again. Right. But it really helps you to be in control who's of making decisions for you. So, and and I think a lot of people if they don't have anybody to name, that's a you know that can be embarrassing for people, it can be painful mm-hmm. and they may not want to talk about that. And okay. we have to, you know, respect that, but let right. them know what what the options are, you know, that are out there.
0: Now, I know you've mentioned this, but setting up an advanced directive for elderly who may or may not have someone to um, appoint for these kind of assignments, what is the successful tip of making them get into it? I know you've mentioned this, but is is there, I don't know. I think I'm, what what I'm getting at is like, if somebody is listening who doesn't have someone to assign, and maybe that, like you mentioned, is embarrassed about that, how do they overcome that? That, given the importance of what this is, mm-hmm. how would they overcome that embarrassment to actually tackle the the thing that needed to be done now?
1: Well, I think that no, it's it's just becoming so much more common. You know, that I think once people realize they're not alone, you know, there's many, many people out there in the same Mm -hmm. circumstances who also don't have a person to name. You know, there's, I think we're going to hear more about solo agers and elder orphans, Mm -hmm. you know, over over time, because this is becoming more common.
0: Common, yeah.
1: Yeah. And so normalizing it, is, this isn't...
0: and to be
1: embarrassed about. Right, right. And that there are things that you can do to get your needs known and talking to your doctor and letting them know what your wishes are mm-hmm. and filling out the living well and getting that in place. And then maybe talking to other people because you might meet other people who are in the same situation
0: mm-hmm.
1: and thinking, thinking outside of family, thinking, yeah. you know, broadening your,
0: your um, thoughts
1: about fudge.
0: hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, my final
1: question to you, Therese,
0: is what do you do for self-care?
1: <laughs> well, I try to, as best I can, maintain a work-life balance. Mm-hmm. And then I really enjoy being in nature. So that would probably be my number one thing. Okay. And then walks with the dog, hikes with the dog. Nice. Um, I do biking, yoga, swimming. Good for you. Um, so anything really... Kind of getting me moving and getting me outside, and and, yeah. I, and getting me talking with friends and and reading. I love that's the rainy days because I love to read books too.
0: <laughs> oh good, yeah, <laughs> that's wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. This was absolutely delightful and enlightening to hear all that you had to share with all of us today. Um, I appreciate your time and you sharing your knowledge and expertise with us.
1: Well, thank you so much for inviting me. It was really a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you for tuning
0: in to Super Agent Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this So, If you have any questions, feel free to reach out by leaving us a message in the comment section or email us at info at superagentpodcast.com or connect with us on any of the social media sites. If you haven't done so already, feel free to subscribe and review this show. Until then, remember that self-care is self-love. Take good care.